I'm Quinn Murphy, and this is In My Chair. Sandy Linder is a makeup artist icon and is considered a historian on makeup from the 1970s to present. Her first Vogue cover was in 1973. In 2008, she was given the title of Lancome Beauty at Every Age Expert. In 2011, V Magazine did a piece on her first book, Disco Beauty, which was published in 1980. Disco Beauty has become the Bible for makeup artists who want to learn vintage disco makeup. In 2014, V Magazine did another in-depth piece on her called Sandy Linter, The Beautifier. Her next book, The Makeup Wake Up, was released in 2011. The Makeup Wake Up instructs women over 50 on all of the how-tos. She also has a popular series of videos on her YouTube channel, Sandy Linter, and one of the best Instagram accounts, in my opinion. Sandy has over 170 magazine covers like Vogue, Harper's Bazaar, and Cosmopolitan. Sandy Linter is a Studio 54 stalwart and is synonymous with disco makeup and the first supermodel, Gia Karanji. Sandy, welcome in my chair. Hi. 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 This is like our third go round of, of technical difficulties, but it's cool. It's all yeah, cool. It's all good. Um, so, yes, we were discussing that you basically were in the fashion industry in a very different time from today. Tell me about how intimate it was and like how many hair makeup photographers were on the scene. Well, th- there were so few hair. Well, there were five makeup artists in New York City. Wow. Five editorial makeup in New York City. Uh, Joey Mills, Way Bandy, myself, Gloria Natale, and Rick Gillette, who did hair and makeup. There might be one other person, I can't think of the name right now, but that's about it. Right. And uh, there were other hair and makeup people, of course, in Hollywood. And that was it. Those people didn't do editorial. And did you guys have agents? Um, I want to say Maury Hobson was the first, he was a brilliant hairdresser at the time. And he was the first one to get an agent. And, um, I knew I needed one because I was using my mother as my agent (laughs) and, and she was too busy for me. She was just too busy. So I fired her. Because one day, I can't remember the mistake that she made was um, she made a mistake about a photographer and it was either Hero or Avedon, but she gave me the wrong address. And so she got fired. And <laughs> Your I poor had mother to, from yeah, Staten Island. She, she could care less about being my agent. And um, let's see, I, my first agent was John and Leslie Kramer. And so that probably was 1975, probably maybe the end of 1974. Wow. And, and so where were the studios? The photography studios, I remember Chris von Wagenheim was in Union Square. And uh, Albert Watson and Avedon were on East so the studios weren't in a location. They were all over the city. They, haven't, they hadn't yet determined to be in a location. So Avedon and Watson were like on East 77th Street and mm-hmm. between 1st and 2nd. And then Chris was downtown in Union Square. And then Patrick de Marchelier was 
like 23rd Street or something like that, 23rd and 8th. So there really wasn't like, I didn't get a feeling that the photographers had all arranged to be in a certain location. And was it like musical chairs where one day you, it was basically the five hair and the five makeup just kind of. Yeah. uh, I mean, I never, I never thought of it like that, but yeah, I mean, I missed out on a Vogue cover and here's why. Because Way had done, Way Bandy had done the makeup on this girl, Lisa Taylor. And uh, the editor was Jade Hobson. And then he finished. And he did a shoot with Lisa. And it, I think was with Patrick DeMarchelier. And then he left the studio. And Jade came in with me. And Lisa was still there. And I took her makeup off. And we began another shoot. So that would be like musical chairs. Yes. Right. But wow. yeah. So, but the credit went to way. I, I did the makeup for the cover, but when the cover came out, it went to way because he was the first one in the studio and he claimed the credit for the makeup, but were you pissed? Oh yeah. I still am. <laughs> Still bothers me. How would you like that to happen to you? So that day, that day in particular was a musical chair. It did was you just get like, along with the other makeup artists? I didn't know. Uh, one, my best friend was Ariella and I introduced her to everybody. I introduced her to Polly Mellon. I introduced her to everyone, the whole industry. So I brought Ariella into the industry. She was my best friend. We worked together at Bloomingdale's. So we did get along very well for a long period of time. And then I never, you see, because I do makeup, I would never hang out or be around other makeup artists. Right. So I was really close to the hairdressers like Harry King, uh, Maury Hobson, Suga. Um, those three, I, uh, maybe I left, oh, Stephen Knoll, you know, he came in a little bit later. Uh, but yeah, I was very friendly with the hairdressers. Do you think that it was, com- was it competitive or because there were so few of you, you it was see, like everybody had yes, enough to eat? You, you see, exactly. Now that was the way, I'm not that competitive. I was not competitive at all then. And I was worn out, exhausted. So I wasn't fighting for more jobs. I was just like happy to be working. But yes, I was overbooked and overworked. Yeah. Was that because you were also worn out because you were at Studio 54 no, every night? No, no, wasn't that. This happened earlier. This happened earlier. I would be doing, I, I didn't start Studio 54 until it opened. It didn't open until 1977. That started my partying days, April 1977. And for 33 months when it stayed open, I was partying 33 months and living your best wild life. Yes. I have no regrets. Do you remember it all? Well, yeah, you all, I only remember, you know, thank goodness I saved Polaroids and the Polaroids bring back my memory. Okay. Very, very much so. Yeah. See, now we can go through our phone and see where the Uber dropped us off and picked us up. And that kind of helps jog the memory of the night before, but uh, back then you I didn't a, even a think about that. No, I didn't <laughs> even think about that. We had a Polaroid. Yeah. They're prettier than the Uber receipts. What was it like to be an editorial makeup artist in yeah, the that, early I, 70s? That's, that's all I wanted to do. I loved it. I loved it. And I fell into it just like, it was such a, 
easy thing for me to fall into. Um, it was great. I mean, every single day that without a break, I'd be going to Pork and Pecchanian studio to do a cover with Karen Graham. And it was just so pleasant. It was, um, you know, there was pressure. There was a lot of pressure. You were working with really big established uh, photographers. Immediately, immediately. Um, because there was, I hate to say because there was no other people, but I met Polly Mellon. I worked with her with Cork and Pecchanian. I did a cover of Karen Graham. You know, those things kind of, then you get called back. And I got called back a lot. And were and, you intimidated? Did you feel like you were out of your league? Well, or you didn't? well the first day that I worked with Polly, she was pretty awesome. And I was impressed by her. I won't say intimidated, but the model tried to intimidate me and Polly didn't let her. It was, yeah, you know, you see, once you go really behind the scenes, as you know, a lot of stuff goes by and we gloss over everything. But if you ask me, I'll tell you. Right. Uh, so, um, yeah, the model was a big model. She, Karen Graham, this is before her contract with Estee Lauder, but Karen Graham did every cover of Vogue, she and Lauren Hutton. And uh, Talk about scary. Yeah, no, rightfully so. I should have been terrified, but, but somehow Polly had my back in, in a big way because the thing is, when I looked at Karen, she had on her old makeup from earlier in the day. This was her second shoot that day. So, uh, you know, I, I was going to take it all off. And she said, even my mascara. And I looked at her old, tired mascara on her lashes. And I said, and you know, come on. Yes, of course. And she didn't want to remove her mascara. But I, she felt Polly was, behind, you know, behind me, supporting me. Right. And so that's a good editor, you know. Did, did you make a lot of mistakes along the way? Not in the beginning. It's really, really amazing. In the beginning, I was really so into it. Um, but along the way, sure, I made... And my biggest mistake is in not communicating. I communicate well now because I'm thinking about things. But mm. when I'm not really thinking, I don't communicate. And so I don't explain anything to people. And I don't, um, oh, yeah, I got into a lot of trouble, believe me. Really? Because, sure, because um, I was working with Deborah Turbeville um, every day. And it was five girls a day. She never once questioned what kind of makeup I was doing. She just always just let me do whatever I wanted to do. Really? Oh, always, every single day. And I did the iconic bathhouse scenes. Yes, that's one of my questions I've been dying to ask you. Yes. I, it's one of my favorite pictures Yeah, ever. It's, it's really terrific. It's so out there. It's so, and so weird and so wonderful. You did all five girls. Yes, there was no, no one had an assistant. I would ask to have an assistant. So when I say I brought Ariella into the industry, I wanted Ariella to be my assistant, but then I was afraid they wouldn't put her name in vogue. 
So I couldn't ask for her to be my assistant because I wanted her to have her name in vogue. So she, I brought in, but she got her own gig with Arthur Elgore. And so I was working with Debbie, no assistant. But how could she not have any word about what the makeup was going to be because she trusted you intrinsically or just because she 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 didn't care? She, no, she did. She just said, Oh, like that. Like her, her thing was very ethereal. It was, you picked up on her mood. You just right. would pick up on her mood. There so you would some... have a discussion about the, no, the, no. the shoot at all? No, no. I How do just... you know the mood then? You're just like, oh, we're in a bathhouse with, with no, five no, women. No, 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 no. We weren't in a bathhouse. We were worse. We were in Vogue magazine had an office uh, on Madison Avenue. So I would be, it was called The Closet. So I would make up five girls in something uh, in Vogue magazine's office in their closet. Without their, a window? Without a window. The closet was, a, a, you know, it held all the jewelry, all the clothes, all the accessories. It was quite a big room. And then they block off an area with a screen and they had a big mirror and a counter. And what and, about light? Yeah, they had a big mirror with lights, you oh, know, okay. regular like that. And... I was very comfortable doing the girls in there and they would sit down one after the other. And I would just look at the clothes and if they were gold, I figured something out there. And, but eventually, I mean, the thing was, um, but you're, you must be fast to have five girls ready. On well, set. I don't know how fast I was to begin with, but I, I don't consider myself slow. So I've never been slow. So. And as an artist, in the earlier days, did you already have a style or your own aesthetic? No, not really. All I knew was what I liked. All I knew was if I opened a page in a magazine, if I liked something, it stayed burned in my brain. Mm-hmm. And I, I could not wait to do that on somebody. You know that feeling. Yeah. So basically, you just were showing up every day, different shoots, doing and what, whatever what you was felt. Really, yes, whatever I felt. But what was really guiding me, and this is very, very important, I was very influenced by French Vogue and British Vogue. Mm. So if I saw it in French Vogue and if I saw it in British Vogue, I did it. I copied it. So that's what I was giving Debbie. And I think she understood that for sure. So that was just fine with her. And you had a, a good working relationship? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes, very good. I loved her. I loved working with Debbie Turberville. Yeah. Do you think that Debbie Turberville influenced Stephen Mizell? Um, I, not, I don't, probably a little bit, but when I think of Stephen Mizell, I think he was mainly influenced by the 60s and mainly by Avedon. Mm majority of his pictures look like Avedon could have taken them. Mm-hmm. I've seen some images. Um, I mean, he, he could do anything. So it's not yeah. like saying that he no, just not. was influenced I mean, by her, but I have seen some very like almost cinematic and um, images of, there were uh, some girls in like a dressing room and different through, things throughout the year that I thought, Oh, that kind of, you know, reminds me. Maybe of. because that's what Stephen's a great stylist. So I never had the pleasure of working with him. So, you know, but because he was a great stylist, he could absorb and he knew how to create. So he would look at a picture of Debbie's and I'm sure he could create the same thing. 
Did you is, have freelance stylists or it was whoever was at the magazine? Uh, I don't know if they were freelancing. So Jade Hobson was on the masthead and Polly was on the masthead. Um, Gloria Moncur was on the masthead. I don't, and I don't know that there were many freelancers. I think they majority worked for the magazines at that very early days. I wanted to ask you, because nowadays, if you do, I, I don't think a lot of people know this, but um, anyone who dates or is married to hair and makeup is always like, what? You're doing a shoot tomorrow and you're not making any money? You know, it, it just takes uh, people a long time to wrap it their do, head around it. Does it. Take, it does take, and I worked for years not making any money. And I was fortunate that I was living in a studio with my boyfriend who was a hairdresser. His name was Xavier. And so I didn't have to pay my rent. Okay. But so editorial was not paying uh, more, let's say, then than it is now. No. And I, I remember telling them at Harper's Bazaar, I have to get paid. I don't know if it was two fifty a day or whatever it was. And they said, no, we're not paying anymore. And I said, well, then I'm not working for you anymore. And but then it, they paid me. And but that you'd was be lucky like, to get two fifty nowadays. Uh, I, you see, I don't really work like that anymore. So I don't even know. I wouldn't, no, I wouldn't get paid um, for editorial now. No, I've done right. editorial recently with Christy Brinkley. No, there was never any, I don't think. I, and you'll get it like three years later when you've forgotten about the job. Um, I don't know. I, I, don't, I don't even <laughs> so know how, how I without, get paid anymore. <laughs> so how did you subsidize your life? Like, did, was there advertising and that's where you made the money? Well, uh, no, I worked in a hair salon, which I made very little money at. And I had to quit that pretty soon uh, because the editorial was so demanding. But I didn't have to pay for rent. And so I had... You know, I had enough. I mean, I never felt poor and I had enough to go to Henry Bendel's and buy my sweaters and Sonia Raquel sweaters and stuff like that. So there had to be some advertising. Yes, of course. And were the models making good money back then or the photographers? I don't know. I wouldn't know anything. You see, the reason I'm still in the fix I'm in right now is because I had no, never any interest in money. So you okay. see, I never, I ne it never, I never knew what they but made. But you would know if, if Gia had an amazing lifestyle and money to burn, or if it was like, eh, she has the name, but not really you know, doesn't own her. Well, home. get getting back to no, Gia's career was so quick and so fast. You know, Christy Brinkley talks about it. She said she worked for four years before the money started to come in. Okay. And Gia's career was over in four years. So, you know, you really have to put time into the editorial and then people know who you are, and then they start booking you for advertising. But I remember very, very well one thing, Maury Hobson, he said he was going to do edit, uh, advertising and he was $1,000 a day. And so I told my agency, I'm $1,000 a day. And that was it. So we were $1,000 a day. And that Which was, is a that really goes, good money for that, that time. That goes back to 1975. Right. And, and that would Maury, be like what today? Maury, like I don't know what it is today, but Maury Hobson was the guy who did that. Hmm. 
You, you got to interview him. He'd be a good interview. I would love to. I get all my people now from referrals. So, oh, he would be yeah. great. And then, you know, you'll get a commission. I'll send you a beautiful red oh, lipstick th- or yeah, something sure, as thanks. a finder's <laughs> fee. Um, I, I wanted to know so, what about the influence of the Brits? Was that when Anna Winter came to New York and it became oh, more international? Going... Like, okay. what? What was, do you remember that moment feeling like New York went from being all of us New Yorkers to now it's the, the, the world stage? Not really the way you're saying it. So the Brits always had a big influence on fashion. I adored British Vogue and I adored every single one of their models, Barushka, Twiggy, all of those girls. Um, for me, they were fashion. I really wasn't that interested in American fashion. Okay. And I was interested in European fashion and the British Vogue. So, um, and British style, anything British. So I did a shoot in 1975 to Barbados with Anna Winter. She was the editor of Harper's Bazaar at the time. And... The pictures came out amazing. The pictures were done by Rico Pullman and uh, Jerry Hall, a 16 year old Jerry Hall was one of the models and Veronica Hamill was another model. And uh, as I said, the pictures came out absolutely fabulous. I was living for the pictures. That's all I wanted. What was like the young but, Anna Wintour like? Cause I, we know what the well, um, like. Well, she, Okay, honestly, I liked her, but she was a little frosty. Mm. And not frosty. No, I'm only saying that because I know because of her reputation now. No, I, I'll just say she was quiet. Okay. She was quiet. And we, we had to photo, do a lot of pho- photographs on a boat. We were in, in Barbados. We were on a boat with Jerry Hall. And Anna got seasick. Oh, no. And so, you know, she was, I don't think it was one of her favorite trips. Let's put it that way. But I think it's amazing that she was there in 1975 and she was working for Harper's Bazaar before Vogue. And then she went to Viva magazine. And then Vogue. Uh, Then House and Garden, I think, or something like that. And then Vogue. I wanted to ask you about some of the great hair and makeup who you came up with. What was it about Way Bandy that made him become so famous and such a force in the industry? Oh, I mean, listen, I was lucky. I say I was overworked and I was overbooked and I was. But Way was a star. He now don't forget, I never got to know Way right. as a friend because we never were connected like that. He was connected with all the hairdressers like Harry King and Maury Hobson. They were his best friends. Um, but Way was charming and women, and he, he was Southern and he told great stories and women loved listening to him. So he, and listen, he was a brilliant artist, but he had the whole package. He, he, he was somebody that was so in demand and particularly for covers. So mm-hmm. he would be doing his covers with Avedon, Scabulo, 
And if they couldn't get way, maybe they'd get me. And I always knew it. And I was fine with that. You never, never walked in the studio being like, oh, they, they're, they're going to think they got second fiddle. No, never, never, ever, ever. I was always happy to be there. Always. Especially at Scavulo, because I absolutely knew, you know, that way was, but I was never treated like second fiddle. So, and it never bothered me anyway, so. When when Kevin O'Quan came into the industry, did, was there something about him that reminded you of Way Bandy? Well, uh, well, I, I listen. By the time Kevin came into the industry, it was the he came in in the mid '80s when I was like shot. I had given like ten years from '75 to '85, and I was finished. I didn't have it in me to do editorial anymore. I mean, I would still do it but not with the enthusiasm that I had done from the beginning. Mm. So I personally was waiting for a Kevin or a Francois Nars to appear. Be- I didn't know I was waiting for them, but I was looking for direction. Okay. I was looking for direct. There was no one new, young, hot. I was finished. I, I felt finished. No one, no one other than myself knew I was finished. They okay. were, I was still getting booked, but I didn't feel fresh and I didn't feel inspired when um, Kevin and Francois came into the industry. I particularly identified with Francois rather than Kevin because Francois's work was more European. It was more the type of work that I was interested in. But I will tell you, those two guys, Kevin O'Quan and Francois Nars, work their butts off to get where they got. And um, especially creating their makeup line. I mean, they had visions. I was like, I I didn't have that kind of vision and I didn't have that kind of support that they had. Mostly I didn't have the support. So, but I, listen, I was the first one in uh, Barney's buying everything Francois Nars would put out. I use all Kevin O'Quan products till this day. Uh, You know, I was a big supporter of theirs. And did you know them personally? No. Uh, Again, sadly, I never became, I never really was in the, I never had the opportunity to become friendly with makeup artists. Mm -hmm. Um, I wanted to ask, why do we still know or care about Studio 54? Because there's, because here's why, because the people who survived it and the people that talk about it in interviews always say there will never be another place like that. And it's not just me that says it. It's every single person who you will interview who was there. So it's not like we all got together and said, well, whenever we're interviewed, let's stick up for Studio 54 and say it was the best place we've ever been. No, it was just simply the freedom that you felt inside of that place, the glamour, the freedom, the uh, music. And and could it happen without the drugs? Or was that also a part of the magic? Well, I'm sure sure there were many people there that were not taking drugs. I don't know. Uh, I think it was a period of time in New York City in the 70s where Cocaine became the drug of choice. And of course, years later, we figured out, oh, it, it could be a bad thing. But we didn't know that then. Mm. So um, 
trying to think how naive, but but we were naive. And did you start you know, to see that the drugs or alcohol or partying got started to get the best of people in in the fashion industry? Well, I didn't really see that because AIDS came into the picture so quickly. And then, you know, then everything was shot. You know, then it was like, it was done. So I wanted to ask you that um, now that you brought that up, I, as an outsider, I think you went through a lot of, I don't want to, I don't know if the word is trauma, but you had a lot of tragedies and they happened earlier on in your life, whether it be, you know, your girlfriend or ex-girlfriend Gia dying of AIDS or, Everyone else in New York City, not everyone, but other people in New York City dying. Well, certainly Gia affected me personally Mm. and deeply. Was she the first person you knew who died? No, Uh, I I had a doctor and um, I, I was told he's sick, he's in the hospital. And I said, oh, I want to send him some flowers. And they said, no, no, he's too sick. You, you're not allowed to send him flowers. And then I thought, why? I couldn't put that together. And then there was a great hairdresser named Louis Alonzo who died very early on. Like 81, 82? No. Uh, let's see. Gia died in 86. So maybe Louis died in 82, 83. Mm. Some. They were all dying in 83, I mean, and getting infected. We, I, I actually, Gia called me up one evening and talking about whatever she was into. And I picked up an article that I had just read in the New York Times, and I believe it was 1981. And I said, Gia, there's an article, and it says that this gay plague uh, will also affect anyone who's shooting up and you've got to really be careful. This, this could affect you. You could get this gay plague. It, it can also affect you if you shoot up. And um, she went very quiet on the phone. And I will never forget that because I think she went very quiet on the phone because she, she knew either she already knew Maybe I wasn't the first one to tell her that. I think I might have been the first one to tell her that, though, because she was pretty reckless. Was she the first um, heterosexual you knew to die of AIDS? Um, no. She was the first well-known woman to die of AIDS. And I'm trying. Tina Chow died also pretty close to when Gia died. And it was just very, very sad. So the end of the 70s, everything was fabulous. The 80s, 81. Around 82, they started to see this disease. But we didn't know it yet. And then around 83, people started dying. You know, a lot of people and in the industry. I mean, art directors, um, Bill King, photographer, big photographer that I was working with a lot. And so, you know, from 83 till 87, you were like, oh, my 
God, dramatic. There's no way to describe it. I still can't describe it. Mm. You also had another tragic death in your world, which was Chris von Wagenheim. Yes. Died in a car accident. Yes. That was such a mysterious death to me because if I go by my memory, and my memory's not always great, but I will say this. He had taken in 1978, he died in 1981. Now in 1978, he took these fabulous, iconic fence photos of myself and Gia. Right. So I was booked with him one day. And I remember as I was leaving, walking past his, he was behind his desk. I want to say it was the reception desk in his office. And he was behind the reception desk and he was signing photographs and they were the fence photographs and he signed he said sandy come here and he signed one to sandy and he signed another one to gia and then he said apologized to me for something that he had done to gia and i don't i think it was for getting her involved in the fence photographs but i'm not sure what he meant and my, it was such an, listen, Chris von Wagenheim doesn't apologize to anybody for anything. And it was, it took me so by surprise that I mumbled something to him that I, you know, so it was a, it was a, a conversation that just went down the drain. I didn't know what he was talking about. And he certainly didn't understand my answer. So I, and I got these two beautiful photographs. Thank God. God, I had them framed and I still have them. Wow. I never gave Gia hers because I never saw her in any condition to take care of it or to want, you know what I mean? Like, right. Gia, come over now. I've got to give you this fence photo that Chris gave to me. There was never the time that I, it never occurred to me that she would want it or it just never occurred to me. It must be a pretty valuable photo. Yes, uh, it's the Staley, I can call the Staley Wise uh, Gallery values it at around 10,000 each. Mm. What was it like working with, with him? Because he's referenced so much. If you yeah, look at Stephen he was, Klein, yes, yeah. If you look at so many people, yeah, um, um, there was a Ricardo Tisci image years ago with the Rottweiler and the blood coming on oh, his face. Oh, you know what? you can't hear he was like in a different category he was like so great to work with because you never knew what was going to go on and I really mean that I mean he could get anybody to do anything he got me to take off my clothes and to pose nude with Gia by a fence this is after I'd worked all day for Vogue (laughs) and so I was packing my I was packing my makeup up and he just came into the makeup room and he said will you do a personal shoot for me? And I said, okay, fine. And then he walked out of the room and he came back and he said, with Gia? And I said, okay, fine. He left the room and came back and he said, nude. And oh my God, I went, Jesus, what did I get myself into? Inside, I said that. And the the hairdresser was very supportive. His name was Bob Fink. He also died of AIDS. And he was very supportive and encouraging. And 
He said, I'll stay with you, Santi. <laughs> <laughs> now take your clothes off. Yeah, exactly. And I said, well, anyway, well, my point was working with Chris, he could get anybody to do anything. And so, you know, there were editors of Vogue still there on the, on the day shoot that helped him with the fence shoot because I'm wearing jewelry on my wrists and that's not my jewelry. So one of the girl, I believe her name was Sarah Foley. She was an editor from Vogue. She stayed and helped, uh, you know, with that fence shoot with Chris. And I kept my boots on because I'm so short. I wouldn't take my boots off. And when I walked out on set, that's what I heard Sarah say. She said to Chris, Sandy's got her boots on. He said, oh, leave her alone. <laughs> You're like, I'm already topless. Can I at least exactly. have a five-inch heel? <laughs> exactly. Really? I mean, give me a break. I thought, and so he was straight. Oh, uh, you know, yes. I would not be the person who could answer that question. Well, he had a wife. Yes. Okay. And, and a child. And I assume he was yeah the, because the photos that he took of men like it, it reminds me of um of mario testino who's so in yeah, sexy it's photos very, of men no I'm like how very, do you do that if you're a heterosexual uh, it's male? helmet newton he's influenced by helmet newton he okay. was a protege of helmet newton so you know helmet it's that european that kind of you don't know, and I don't really care if you're bi or, I mean, that came early on. That was, you know, it, it didn't matter. what If you were beautiful, you were wanted. It mm. didn't matter if you were straight, bi, didn't matter. And so you ended up having a same-sex relationship. Well, I had, yes, I had a relationship with Gia that was, uh, it's kind of difficult for me to describe. Um, she was the, I mean, yeah, she was charming. She was, um, but did you consider yourself gay in that? No, no, never. I never considered myself gay. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, I, I, you know, we just kind of got along and homo emotional. I, I, you can label it. I don't care what you call it. <laughs> I really don't care. It was, and did you not care in that time? Because that no, was a I didn't care. Time. I did not care because Polly Mellon lived right next door to me. And this a different, I, uh, I live at 434. She lived at 424, same block. And she would see Gia and I running up and down the street at night and coming and going. And I didn't care. Now, I was more concerned for her. Mm-hmm. Because she was a model and I was thinking about her career, you know, if she wanted to get a um, contract or something like that, they might, you know, not because want Gia her to was be a lesbian. You a know lesbian. What I mean? She had no yeah. interest in men. Uh, well, you know what? I have to tell you something. I can tell you right now. I know one, two. I know two guys she had sex with. And I know one guy that she had a flirtate, a pretty long flirtation with. Now I'll make that three guys she had sex with. Gia was fluid. And, you know, and for me to be attracted to somebody like that, I can understand that. She mm. was, 
She was, she was a woman who loved women and wanted to be around women. But when she was around men, she was, she was who she was. I mean, I, it's hard. She could captivate anyone. Anyone. And, and she was so captivating. So, you know, when you, when you are that beautiful, so many opportunities come your way. And, and so. Who are you telling? (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, you know what I mean? It's like, you know. Have you watched the Halston series on Netflix? I loved it. I really did. I'd like to know from you, what did they get right? And if they got anything wrong? I didn't think that they got anything wrong. Um, uh, I mean, they open up very, very boom, right in your face, like the, the sex scenes with Halston at the meat market or wherever he was. And um, no, I I. Did you know Halston? No, I did not. I um, I worked for him a couple of times. I worked with his girls all the time for Vogue. I worked with uh, Elsa Peretti a couple of times. I did her makeup for two shoots. One was a Debbie Turberville, which is fabulous. And the other one was Bill King. And I don't think I've ever seen the photo. Mm. So you had this kind of elated era of Studio 54. Your career was taking off. You were working more than even you wanted to. And then you said that you got burned out, basically, is what I took Yeah, burned out. Yeah. And especially when Gia died, I, I was... I was still going to work. I still had to pay the bills, but I wasn't there. I wasn't there. Was that the thing that, that really took you out? Yeah, definitely. Because. So how do you deal with that? Or how did you get to the other side? Well, my friends will laugh hysterically because Studio 54, Sandy Linter was wearing Ralph Lauren clothes and she was taking needlepoint to work every day. And I would sit there and very calmly do my needlepoint. And it just kept my nerve because, you know, I wasn't doing drugs anymore and uh, I needed to calm myself down and I needed to... uh, what I made don't you know. decide I, to stop doing drugs? Um, vanity. Oh. I remember. I remember being asked to go to a Diana Ross concert, the fabulous concert that she did in Central Park, and that might have been 1984. I can't. I'd have to look that up. Maybe it's 83 or 84. Didn't it rain? Yes, yeah. and that was the one. I, Stephen Knoll invited me, and I couldn't show up because I was too high <laughs> in my apartment. I just didn't. I just could not put myself together. And and also, I looked took one look at myself in the mirror, and I kind of said, "Ugh, you look disgusting." And so the vanity of what the drug was doing to me kind of gnawed at me, and it and it just that was the first time I saw exactly what it was doing to me. Mm. And I kind of took notice of that. 
And I gradually just gave it up. But it was gradual, but I did give it up. Yeah. But you're also, um, not to be overly dramatic, but why not? You're alive when a lot of people didn't make it out. Do you have, did you always have a, some self preservation or a voice inside of you that went, don't do that extra, you know? No, I, I tell you something. I, I pushed it to the nth degree. Okay. I pushed myself to the nth degree. There's nothing inside of me that says, oh, there is a little something, a tiny little something inside of me that says, okay, not that. Don't do that. Okay, so that tiny little thing inside of me, which wasn't very loud in the 70s, uh, that saved me. That had to because, you know, there but for the grace of God go I. Absolutely. Was it really depressing when you, in the 80s, for a myriad of reasons? I mean, you had Ronald Reagan as the president. You had AIDS. You had the end of disco. And you had terrible fashion, in my opinion. Maybe you thought it was great. (laughs) But um, what did you... Yeah, but we had great makeup. Don't forget, I was a makeup artist. And I loved it. I loved the makeup. I, I went from loving... Okay, so this is horrible for me to admit, but I went from loving British Vogue, which I always loved. I love today. Um, But I could watch Dynasty, and Mm. I love Dynasty, too. I'm not saying that. I mean, yeah, I loved it. I loved Joan Collins, and uh, I mean, I knew that. But do you look back at it and, and cringe a little? Or you still think it, lo- it holds no, up? No, no, no. I don't cringe. I, I see what didn't hold up. I do see what did not hold up. And I see what does hold up. And a lot of the 80s, because we've revisited it. Like, right. the big, you know, like the big hair. I don't hate big hair. I mean, it can be done really, really well. And uh, no, of course, of course, there are ridiculous uh, versions of the 80s. Yeah. Of course, it was a funny period. It was. It was very funny. How long did your kind of um, period of of not feeling your best? I don't know the way to put it without sounding three, like I'm I know exactly you. how long. <laughs> it took three years. It took me three years to recover. And what it were you doing? Me, uh, I'll tell you what I was doing. I had a, my, my mother was fabulous and she had a house in Jersey and every weekend, I just go every single weekend for three years, I went to New Jersey. That's what I did. And I didn't go out at night. I didn't even go downtown. I didn't even, I didn't even take a, if I, unless I had to go to work, I didn't even visit Soho or I didn't do anything because I was really just focused on I didn't even know. I was just putting one foot in front of the other. I was really putting, and that went on for at least, and then if, oh, but there's something else that was hideous that happened to me at all. That This also made me go to Jersey on the weekends. I was mugged. I was mugged in the lobby of my apartment and they robbed my Rolex watch and the guy strangled me and threw oh my, my body and threw my body under the staircase where the uh, doorman found it. So that happened in 1985. So uh, what do you mean found it found the watcher found your body found my body. 
and I had been strangled. And, you know, I immediately got put into a cop car, taken to a hospital, had the neck brace put on me, brought into a detective's car. He's trying to find this guy on the street, which was impossible. But I have something really wonderful to say about that. That was 1985, and I was working a lot with Cheryl Teagues, supermodel Cheryl Teagues. Mm. One night when I, she, I told her what happened to me. And one night when I came home, there was a Rolex box in the elevator for me. Wow. So, you know, that's a, that's really special. That, that eliminated all the PTSD. Uh, yeah. You Just know what? One shiny watch. It really, that it does something for you though. It makes you feel supported. Right. It was a, it an really, act of yes. generosity and kindness yes. that you and didn't support. expect. Yeah. There's no way I expected that. No way. So, um, so anyway, there were a lot of reasons. I just could not be in New York City over the weekend. I just couldn't. And I just wasn't. So unless I was working, I went to New Jersey. And I don't regret that either because, you know, I had those very special years with my mother. So, so you've had at least a five-decade career. Yeah. Yeah. And obviously that there has to be ups and downs or ebb and flow that naturally happens when you're oh, in demand. Oh yeah. yeah. And then you're kind of, you know. You are not. When you're right. hot, you're hot. And when you're not, you're not. And boy, do you know it. How do you how did you deal with that? Um uh, that's really tricky. That's really a good one because because here's the, how I dealt with it. I felt cold before anyone else knew I was cold. In other words, I was still getting booked on really hot jobs, even editorially. I did a lot of work with Albert Watson, but I felt inside of me cold so that when other people realized, oh, she's a has-been or whatever they wanted to call me, mm-hmm. I'd, be, I'd be like, I just dealt with it. I, and you know what? I wound up in... Uh, working in studios that I never would have worked in when I was hot and I knew it, but they were lovely to me. Those people were really lovely to me. And, uh, did you feel then, sh- a sense of shame? No, never, never. Or ashamed, not no, shame, ashamed. never, never, never. You never felt I, less I than can't because the ever, industry no, didn't want you no. as much. I can't ever really tell you that I felt ashamed. Um, no, I would feel if I were, I, I, this is how I felt because I was so fragile at the time. I felt, please just let me get the jobs that I can deal with. You know what I mean? Like yes. don't, you know, Stephen Mizell asked to see my book. And I didn't know that he meant my port. I was so out of it. He called up my, he had his office or his whatever, called up Elizabeth Watson, who was my agent at the time. And she said, Sandy, Stephen Mizell wants to see your book. And I was so out of it. I didn't understand he wanted to see my portfolio. I thought he wanted to see my Disco Beauty book. That's how (laughs) out of it I was. Because I couldn't even imagine anyone would want to see my portfolio. And she said the word book to me. So 
I mean, I was useless. I really was useless. I was just going through the motions. So, so how do you get from that to enjoying life or loving yourself? Well, because I, I don't think I ever stopped loving myself. I mean, you have, you have to have a certain amount of self-respect. And even if others don't think you're num- numero uno or number one or number two or number three or whatever, or you, it doesn't matter. It just has to come from someplace inside of you. Okay, let me ask you something. Now that you are in your 70s, which I yes, hope you don't 73, mind no, 73. No. Any anytime I'm ever interviewed, that's the first thing they start out with that I'm 73 years old. It's the most important thing. So I don't know if you're supposed to say this anymore because you're not allowed to say anything, but um, I don't care. I think you look at fantastic. Like you are a, a, the benchmark. Oh, you're adorable. No, you, you look amazing. Well, not the point adorable. I wanted to make. When you're looking back over your five decade career, what mattered? What matters to you looking back and what completely has no value to you? I think it all matters. It all matters. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to think what would have no value to me. Um, maybe other people's opinions about me and who I am. They I don't care that much. I really don't. I don't care. It's hard to hurt me like that. Like, you know, it's so great. Uh, Well, here's why I've prepared myself. You know, I, I have a Facebook page for Gia and many of her fans hate me. They hate me because I didn't love her enough. I didn't, I didn't save her life. I wouldn't, I wouldn't answer the phone when she called. I mean, they pick, pick on me. They hate me. They hate me. They hate me. And, uh, you know, if I can withstand all that hate, I, I don't hate myself. I know I was there and I know what I did and, and she knew it too. And the odd thing is she didn't hate me. So. Well, I mean, know, yeah, but these people are living vicariously through an idea of somebody. Well, you know who they are. They're those Facebook, the, right. those people. And so they have said the most venomous, horrible things to me. And they right. don't stick. They just don't stick. And then I they go back it. to living in their parents' yeah, basements. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, right, 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 right. But, I mean, sometimes, of course, a remark will get you, you know, that really hits home. Yes, of course. But I think with the career, I think everything was the was important. The downfall was just as important as when I started. It was really important. And it was just as important as, you know, me uh, writing a book with Lois Joy Johnson when I was 61 years old and telling women over 50, they can look beautiful. And this is how you do it. You know, doing a beauty book for women over 50, you know, that. Sandy, did you make real friends in the fashion industry? I did. I mean, I don't see them as much as I would like to, but I would say Harry King. Uh, I've never mentioned Howard Fugler, but he was a hairdresser that was one of my best friends. Maury Hobson, yes. Freddie Lieber, yes. Um, Elizabeth Hurley. 
I, I loved working with the models and I loved, and I will put Gia definitely, Gia. You know, there's so many models that I loved working with. Um, and I could, Lisa Taylor called me a couple of months ago and she said she wanted me to do her makeup for something. It never happened, but it was just the way, like if, even if we don't see each other, you know, you know that person and you right. know when they call you. What the hell happened to Jerry Hall marrying Rupert Murdoch? Well, I, this is what I know about Jerry. I'm not, a, <laughs> I worked with Jerry pretty often when she was modeling. Okay. But Jerry loved, and she made no excuse for it. She loved jewels. She loved money. She was a girl from Texas. She, uh, she loved all of that mm. very much. So, and she was with Mick for a long, long time. And she had five kids with him and look what happened to her there, you know? So she probably, she just went for it. Uh-huh. And, and I bet you she's happy. Hmm. We're going to have to let that one lie right there because, you know, I guess she's going to get what she, what she gets. Well, well, the thing is she put in so much time with Mick and everyone loves Mick and he disrespected her. So I think, I don't know. I can't speak for her. I think she's looking at him as a person and not who he is. I don't know if you, you can understand that. Not the person who single-handedly is like, you know, taking down the country, but more as just her husband. I yes, it's the only way I can explain it. Um, and and I'm not the one to really explain Jerry Hall's interest in Rupert Murdoch. I'm not right. close enough to her to know that. I'd like to, you to explain the shoe choice you wore in her wedding, but well, we don't have time for that. <laughs> um, if you were able to go back in time and meet yourself, where uh, would it be, and what would you say? Where would it be? <sighs> Well, it would, where would it be? It would be in New York City. Uh, I would be in my boyfriend's apartment and I would tell myself, keep your eyes open. Don't be as trusting as you are. I, I trusted everybody and that just doesn't work out. So you just have to be smart. Mm-hmm. And I just wasn't like that. I wasn't smart. No. Are you now? Smarter. Sure. Yeah. Um, Do you have time for a quick game? It depends. I'm not that good at games, but. Yeah, I think you're going to ace this one because you're an expert on it. Okay. Um, It true or false. Someone died in the air vents at Studio 54. Well, I don't remember that story. So. If that's true, uh, I don't remember that story from back then, but it could have happened. My source says it's true, and my source then is the that's internet. Fine. So the that's internet fine. never lies, you know? The internet never lies. <laughs> I don't remember it in real time, let's right. say it that way. Studio 54 opened its doors in A, 1977, B, 1978, C, 1976, or D? A. Oh, 
That's correct. 1977. Wow. You must have been there. Mm-hmm. Um, in total, the famed nightclub was open for A, 44 months. B, 33. Ah, yes. C, 33 months. Wow. Um, the widow named Sally Lippman. Disco Sally first yes. visited the studio at A, 60 years old, B, 50 years old, C, 77 years old, or D, 25 years old. I think 77, but I'm not 100% you see, you're, sure. You're batting a thousand if that's yeah. what it is. Well, sports. you pick the right subject. Exactly. <laughs> now let's do something for all the makeup folks who just you know want to hear about products. What is the one product that you really can't live without? Oh. Uh, myself personally? Sure. I couldn't live without, I actually couldn't live without a black eyeliner. Okay. Favorite makeup artist other than yourself? Oh, I'm not my, I'm not my own favorite makeup artist. Uh, not at all. Um, but good grief. Uh, Pat McGrath. Um Oh, there's so many. So there's many. That's really a hard question. So many. That's a very difficult question. I really have to think about that. Uh, you know, I get a little flustered, but yeah. uh, her name has to be right there. And then in the, the person who influenced me when I was a kid was Barbara Daly. Okay. Of course, she worked for British Vogue. And uh, sh- her work is superior. It's just divine. Favorite neighborhood in New York City? Favorite neighborhood. I'm not really like, uh, I don't really hang out anywhere. So it's certainly not where I live. I live on 52nd and 1st Avenue. And okay. it's, it's not my favorite. Um, you know, it has to be downtown. It has to be. Tribeca. Okay. I don't know. Walking around downtown. What's your favorite nail color? Uh, You know what? I don't really, I was wearing the most beautiful lavender with a little sparkle in it. And I get powdered nails and I can't find it anymore. And it was the right color for me. Maybe one of the listeners will uh, find out. I mean, yeah. Worst beauty trend? Well, you know how everyone puts the uh, foundation on with those egg-shaped beauty blenders. I just want everyone to have a word of caution. Those beauty blenders pick up a lot of product. And as you get older, in your 50s, they pick up too much product for you. So you're going to be walking around with a lot of foundation on your face and that's not a good look. Even if it, even if it's damp, do you find that? Yeah, I, I would rather use my fingers or a brush. Okay. Or an Alcon sponge. Somehow the beauty, blend, beauty blenders have to be damp. You can't use them right. dry. Well, I've, I've so, known some people thought that who were using it dry, and then I thought maybe they just weren't using it. Correctly. Well, or maybe maybe you can apply powder with it dry. I don't know, but they pick up a lot of product, and I think therefore they're meant for younger skins. Mm. 
What is the worst thing a photographer can do? The worst thing a photographer can do? Oh, I, I have had a photographer throw me against a wall. Oh, sure. I was going to think, oh, not light it correctly. But throwing <laughs> against the wall definitely uh, would top that list. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's crazy. Um, I mm-hmm. hope that you never worked with, had to work with him again. Well... I did work with him again, but I worked with him again many, many years later. And he kind of, you know, he had calmed down and he was a different person when I worked with him again. So Mm. he had a stroke. What is the worst excuse you've ever given? The worst excuse. I don't give excuses. I'm pretty, pretty honest. What's the least favorite question that you get asked over and over again? Well, it, sometimes I get asked questions about Gia when I'm not really prepared to speak about her. So sometimes it might come out at work, but people are very, very respectful of her. And the thing is, the story is more complicated than that. The story is a story. It's not a sentence. It's not a this and it's not a that. You know, it's it's like we dated. Okay, fine. You know, um, but it's very sensitive subject. So not that many people do ask, but sometimes it comes up. Okay. What is your favorite cheap makeup product? My favorite cheap makeup product, I think, would be. um, I buy very expensive makeup. I always have. And then, of course, I'm lucky, as you know, being a makeup artist, we get given such nice makeup. Yeah. Uh, I don't often use cheap makeup. Um, okay. You mean drugstore brands? Yeah, exactly. I'm not a big drugstore brand girl. You're into the glam. I, well, it's not that. I It just, um, that too. But drugstore can be glamorous. It's just... I always like to give recommendations of a product. And sometimes when I buy something at a drugstore and I send a person to that drugstore, they're out of it or they, I I don't know, it's a big runaround. So I feel more safe and secure with the beauty brands that I find that are are more expensive. (laughs) So go buy a $500 La Mer cream. So it's difficult. No, that is kind of, that's different that you can buy, you can buy good creams in the drugstore. That's not what I think of as makeup. Right. I'm just giving you a hard time. What is your least favorite lip color? I probably don't have one. Um, I know when it doesn't look good on somebody, but I, I probably don't have a least favorite lip color. Um, You know, when Mac came out in the 90s, my friend Lauren Izerski and I, we have to laugh because we both wore this color that looked like liver lips. Oh. <laughs> we both laughed, but it was, what was like, it called? I can't remember. I, I, if I, if you give me a minute, I probably could remember. But Mac came out with these horrendous, um, really beat down nude shades 
cool. When they, but we love them. We all, we looked kind of ghoulish in them, but we love them. So. Yeah. And it's probably had a comeback three times since then. So I'd like to right now ask a fan question. And this is from Mark Whitmer, NYC. And he wants to know when will Disco Beauty be re-released? It's a must I would love to. I can't find anybody who would re-release that for me. I mean, I, I did it with Simon and Schuster. They have released the book. They've put the book in my hands. Now I just have to go out and find another publisher. And I just don't have the wherewithal to do that. So, but I would love to do that. That would Me be too. Great. I want a copy. Yeah. Laura loves makeup underscore MUA wants to know favorite products for mature skin prep and foundation. Well, for skin prep, I mean, for foundation, I, mean, I think should, skin prep under foundation. Hmm. Uh-huh. Skin prep under foundation. So I'll be snobby again. You know, Augustinus Bader. Yes. Uh, does a marvelous moisturizer. And I can say that because even at my age of 73, it's improved the moisture in my skin. And that's hard to do. So... I don't mean to uh, rattle off another very high price product, but well, life's, it's true. You know, life's not <laughs> cheap. Know. No, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> and then finally, we have a question from Kim Bossman from New York City. I think she's in New York City. She wants to know favorite mascara for older women. Well, I Again, here we go, pricey. So I like Chanel. I'll tell you why. I have thin lashes and I can use it on mine and my skinny thin lashes will look better and plumped up. And I can use it on somebody who's got medium thick lashes and it looks great. It, it sort of, uh, it doesn't get thick and it doesn't um, make your lashes hang together. And women over 50 do have thin lashes. So I would recommend the Chanel. Which Chanel mascara is it? Oh, I, I don't know. It would be their basic black. The Le Volume or? Uh, Le Volume. That would be okay. it. That would be yeah, it. Yeah, that is so good. It's so good. It's very rich, but it's not overpowering. Um, Sandy, I have been a fan of your work and your career and your Instagram account for so long. And I just wanted to say I'm really happy that we got in touch Oh, thank um, you. Thank you. And this was such a fun conversation. I learned oh, so much. You. I'm and glad it ha- finally you. happened. <laughs> I know between scheduling and uh, technology. Technology, right. It was, but it, it did. A little it dicey. Happened. And thank you for mentioning my Instagram account. I'm kind of proud of it because, um, you know, I, I just put it all out there. I mean, if you're into vintage makeup and fashion photos from the 70s on, I can't think of a better account. It's just incredible. Thank you. All right. Well, have a great day. And um, hopefully we can talk again. Thank you, Quinn. Thank you. Bye. Bye.